upon us. This afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. And we'll return to a very classic sequence of meditations that we'll take at our own pace, not rushing it, based upon the, the writings of Buddha Gosa, namely the Sudhimaga, or Path of Purification, in which he wasn't coming up with his own new idea, but rather synthesizing generations, centuries of the cultivation of metta, bhavana, in the Theravada tradition, based upon, of course, the teachings of the Buddha and the Pali Canon. And the sequence that just makes such marvelous sense of starting with oneself and really making sure that you're, how do you say, you have a good basis there, that you really do have a, a genuine sense of affection, warmth, kindness. You really do wish yourself well. And then extending out to a very loved person, a very cherished person, for whom you find that sense of affection, warmth, caring, arises very easily. To another person, another person, just gradually, kind of like moving out in concentric circles, out to more casual friends, people you don't know very well, but kind of like them, people you don't really know much one way or another. And then it's almost like going over a continental divide, where the water flows this way as versus that way. And then you cross over the divide to people you don't really like. You don't really care for them. And the whole idea here, the enormous challenge, and frankly I would say this is a challenge that's worth taking on for however many lifetimes it might take, eons it might take, to break down all the barriers. Okay? It's a virtue that one finds celebrated throughout the wisdom traditions, East and West. In our Western tradition, we often call it unconditional love. Unconditional love. And clearly, no tradition, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, or any other tradition has a monopoly on this. But the, the innate value, the invariant value, that is, wherever you are, in whatever galaxy, whatever time or place you might be, unconditional love has to be one of those keepers one of those virtues that is just of utmost value you know, and worth however much time it may take, lifetimes upon lifetimes, if necessary, to cultivate or to unveil or both. But how is it possible to develop this sense of, of affection, of warmth? Tibetans call it yidu ongwe jamba. Yidu ongwe jamba. And that is, jamba is loving kindness where the person, it's kind of like affectionate loving-kindness or a sense of endearment, endearment. A really good example, of course, would be the mother looking, attending to her child, grandparents attending to their grandchildren. It's so easy, you know. Now, obviously, there can be a lot of attachment, but my sense is grandparents to grandchildren, a little bit less attachment. Not so much my, 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 because actually they're somebody else's child. You know, so it's one step removed, one step removed attachment, but no step removed in terms of loving kindness. That's my sense. I have n equals one. <laughs> I have one grandpa and one grandson. So that's my. That's all I know about being grandfather or having grandchildren. Just one. But I have some sense of that. So but how is that possible to develop that? Just that open-heartedness, that warmth, that sense of tenderness, of caring to people who really appear disagreeable. Sometimes their attitudes are disagreeable. One sees, how do you say, 
smoke signals of mental afflictions, cravings, self-centeredness, arrogance, intolerance, aggression, so forth and so forth. Those are not enduring qualities. Those are not enduring qualities. And then behavior that comes out of it, being sneaky, being manipulative, betraying one's trust, and so forth. All the kind of, Those are not enduring qualities either. So the challenge here is to now look beyond appearances, right? Even if the person on occasion, perhaps even frequently, appears very disagreeable. And when you try to infer what's going on in this person's mind, it's no better. Disagreeable on the outside, disagreeable on the inside. See, now where's the warm and cuddly part? You know, where's the part to love? And it's very easy to, when you see, okay, if I go this shallow to behavior, that's not agreeable. Go deeper into mental afflictions, that's not agreeable. That's not, there's nothing to love there. I don't love, I don't love tuberculosis. I don't love HIV. I don't love rabies. And I don't love mental love lickings either. And so we have to go deeper. But then if you go deeper, you might find, oh, no self. I, that's, there's nothing lovable about no self either. <laughs> you know, some intrinsically inherently existent self there that's really adorable. So if you'd gone on the surface, you'd get nothing lovable. And if you penetrate too deeply with the eyes of wisdom, kind of x-ray vision, and you're looking there within the body, I'm not going to love your spleen, your heart, your skin, your brain, your kneecaps. So there's nothing I'm going to love in your body. Then in terms of maybe attachment, if sexual desire comes up, but set that aside. So no, we're looking at loving kindness here. Well, no, I'm not going to love your eyeballs, your hair, your glasses, and so forth. Nope. So I have to go through that. And then I, then I imagine going into your mind and I see just a cluster of a wide variety of mental, mental factors coming up. Right? Memories and images and desires. Lots and lots of mental afflictions. Occasionally, you know, a little virtue pops up. And then pops it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. You know? <laughs> back down again. So if we're looking for kind of like majority rule here, in terms of all the mental factors and so forth, we may find that the virtue is outvoted by mental afflictions and all the stuff that comes from it. We say, okay, well I have to look deeper, beyond the body, and now beyond all these myriad mental factors, they're all coming, going, it's all churning, 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 all transforming, always in a state of flux. So you're kind of wondering, which one am I supposed to love here? It's like looking at a theater stage and just seeing actors coming, going, coming, going, coming. Okay, which one am I supposed to love? And they just, you know, the villain shows up and then the damsel in dress, and then the hero shows up and then an accountant shows up. So which one am I supposed to love? So you look through that, you look through that bandwidth as you're kind of trying to look with x-ray vision with the eyes of wisdom, tending to the other person. You say, well, I'm not going to love the body. The body's just flesh. I'm not going to love the mind. I mean, that's just a bunch of mental factors, and some of them not very agreeable. So let's look deeper. Now, what are, you, what are you going to look for? The person who has? The person who has? The body and mind? That's the object of loving kindness, right? People, persons, sentient beings. The sentient being who has the body and the mind, right? But wait a minute. You set the body apart. You set the mind apart. And now, where is this human being that you're supposed to love? This what, inherently existence human being? We spend a lot of time in wisdom determining that that self-existent human being doesn't even exist at all. So it looks like we're dealing with cruddy, cruddy, and nothing. 
Now, where is loving kindness supposed to come in? It's a real question, isn't it? If we go back to Bodhagosa, and I really encourage you, it's in the Visuddhimagga. I cover it. I cover a lot of the territory in my book, The Four Immeasurables. I draw very heavily on him. And I'm quite sure I mentioned there. If one asks, what is the immediate catalyst? What immediately triggers or arouses a sense of loving kindness? And it is seeing the lovable quality or the lovableness of the other person. It doesn't mean attractiveness. Right? It doesn't mean how much this person arises as an object of, of one's desire, attraction, craving, and all of that. Oh, that's, separate. that's separate. The lovableness. That some, someone arising who clearly is worthy of love, who arouses that sense of closeness, of affinity. That's the trigger. Attending closely enough, but not too closely. But now, if this were a camera lens, exactly where do we focus? At 5 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet? So we're attending to another person, right? If we just look on the surface, then we're just dealing with attachment, because that's an object. The front of Katinka, okay, there's an object. Like it, don't like it, but it's not a person, it's just an appearance of a body, right? So I have to go deeper than that. So not at 5 feet, right? But then if I go, okay, I'll go ten feet. Let's imagine the mind is ten, five feet behind. Well, not that. Go five feet beyond that. Then I'm into no-self. So exactly where do we focus? Where do we focus to be able to attend to the lovable quality that arouses that sense? As when one looks at one's own child, grandchild, a very dear friend, in a very harmonious and loving relationship, like a romantic relationship, marital relationship, just gazing across the other and just feeling the sense of warmth, of kindness, affection, closeness arising. Well, clearly these are big issues, big challenges, I think. Right? If we take it right back to the beginning where Buddha Gosa suggests we start cultivating loving kindness for ourselves, that would be a really good place to start. Because if we can get that one, if that's real, if it's not just some concept, some little nice thoughts, visualization, but when we direct our awareness to ourselves and attending inwardly, we can really sense someone, there's someone here who's worthy of love, worthy of affection, lovable. If we can do that with respect to ourselves, then, then we have something to work with. Then we can follow this motif that runs throughout the four measurables. As for myself, so for you. Right? As for myself. If I can find someone lovable here, when I do have rather x-ray vision about my own mental afflictions, I can't say none of them get by without my noticing, but I'll be a little bit arrogant here. I don't think a whole lot of them do. I've been watching my mind for a long time. Ooh. Yikes. What an array. No wonder the Buddha said there are 84,000 mental afflictions. Yeah, I think I got about 83,000 of them. The other, the other, the other thousand, I'll, I'm sure they'll come up. <laughs> so in the midst of all of that, is there anyone here who's worthy of love? 
And he said, yeah, virtues come up. But if we're going to correlate a sense of loving kindness, affection, directly to, okay, how much virtue you got? How much virtue you got going today? I'll let you know out of a scale of 100, I'll let you know how much loving kindness you deserve today. Oh, only a 47. Well, okay. Keep on working at it. I'll check you out tomorrow. We'll see if we can pop it up into the, you know, the top 50% percentile. So that's clearly not it. That's just basically just attachment. So how do we do this? Deep waters, I think. Really deep waters. Well, let's look at it the opposite direction. What blocks it? Because clearly loving kindness does happen. This is not some hypothetical, some Buddhist dreamed up, or Socrates, or Jesus. I got an idea. You know, no, it's something. Loving kindness is there. And as His Holiness Dalai Lama so often comments, this sense of deeply caring for another, loving another, giving kindness and compassion for another. He said, you know, at least for us mammals, at least for us mammals, this is pretty deeply built in. He made an interesting comment that he sensed there's a strong kind of biological imperative for all the species for which the mother actually cares for the young. So, mammals, birds. They lay an egg, but there's the mother, and she's willing to do the flap-flap, you know, pretending to have a broken wing and so forth, when the fox or some other predator comes, trying to lead lead the predator away from the nest, right? Oh, I'm I'm helpless, I'm helpless, come me, I'm, I'm yummy. Come here, come here. Uh, 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 uh. Anything to draw them away from the nest. So clearly there's some caring there of a mother bird who doesn't have a very large cortex, but nevertheless, you know, <laughs> willing to, you know, make, put herself in danger for her young. And then he comments, coming back to his holidays, he said, now then on the, on the other hand, there are turtles, sea turtles. And they'll, once in a while, long lines, swim up on the shore, drop their eggs, and say, good luck to you, Mike. And they just swim out in the ocean, you know, and, and they never see their babies again. That's it. They're not coming back and saying, how did it work out? You know, <laughs> It's just like, I did my job, good luck. And assuming about 99% of them are, are going to be, you know, bird, bird food uh, before they ever get to the ocean. So in that case, where the mother never cares for the young, never even sees them, and biologically, that's just the way it's organized, he said, I suspect there, there may not be much in the way of kind of a biologically driven love. Because where's the template, you know? When the male comes along, they just mate, but I don't think there's any big love affair there. One turtle to another, they're not even very attractive. (laughs) Really, how can you really fall in love with a turtle? That would take a lot of imagination. And I don't think the turtles have it. Again, limited frontal cortex. <laughs> but happily, we're not turtles. Or snakes. Or fleas. Or a lot of other critters that just dump their eggs and walk away. Or salmon that swim upstream, drop their eggs, and then just drift down and die. Well, they don't have any chance to take care of the young. But we do. So as Honanis comments, on the one hand, there is, for us mammals, for us human beings, also with big cortex, then there does arise something quite spontaneously, of really caring about at least one or two, or at least the nuclear family, or perhaps the tribe, the clan, the group, where there's a sense of willing to sacrifice, sacrifice oneself for the good of the, the nuclear family, your own child, your clan, your tribe, 
and so forth. And it comes out of a deep caring. And of course, it's rooted in attachment because it's my child, my spouse, my family, my tribe, my country, and therefore willing to sacrifice. The kind of sacrifices soldiers make for each other. It's legion. It's, it's, it's legendary. The deep, deep commitment. The soldiers in a, in just one squad, like ten, ten soldiers, or a larger group, a company, willing to jump on a hand grenade. No. I mean, the kind of bonding, I mean, I, I shouldn't talk about it, everybody knows about it. That's pretty intense. That shows a real, a real commitment, a willing to even sacrifice one's own life, the bonding that takes place. But of course, having no qualms at all about blowing the brains out of somebody with a different uniform. So it's absolutely limited here. Willing to make any sacrifice for this group and willing to perform any degree of misery on the other group. So that's biological. That we have. That we don't need to meditate for. We don't need any dharma. Soldiers commit to each other. They're, they're atheists. They're Christian. They're whatever they are. That kind of commitment happens. In a family it happens. But now through meditative development, expanding that be out beyond, beyond the framework of attachment. This person's mine, 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 mine. Strong identification. Biological identification. Or patriotism or what have you. So, if we have that natural inclination, that natural impulse of loving kindness, it's built in, and then it just needs to be something to be developed, expanded, and gradually breaking down the barriers, which is what the meditative cultivation of loving kindness is all about. It's not trying to conjure up something we've never experienced, it is trying to arouse something we've already experienced, and then extending it and breaking down barriers until it's truly unconditional. Well, in that regard, with that very clear vision, because that's, that's it, that's what the cultivation of loving kindness is all about, right? Then it might be a really good place to start to develop unconditional loving kindness for oneself. Master that one. Then you might actually develop unconditional loving Kindness for a spouse, or a fellow monk, or nun, or a family member, or neighbor, and so forth. So how is that possible? When sometimes we appear agreeable to ourselves, you know, quite happy with what we, something we've done, we, we did well, something to be proud of, something to be happy with, so we kind of feel good about ourselves. On one day, and then another day, just the opposite, feel wretched about ourselves. Oh, I hate myself. I hate myself for this. I'm so disappointed. I'm really discouraged. Oh, I can't stand myself. Those kind of days. So up and down, up and down. It quite standing, it makes completely good sense, doesn't it? That if this is how we're relating to ourselves. Oh, I feel so good about myself. Oh, I feel terrible myself. I can't stand myself. I look in the mirror. I want to puke. Vomit on the mirror. Oh, disgusting. And other days, I just want to smile at the mirror. Now there's two of us, me over here, and I get a look at you over there. I'm going to just get a hall of mirrors. You know. <laughs> On the good days, just look in all directions and see the good me in all directions. Oh, I'm so good. You know. So if it's conditional there, then what are the chances of having un unconditional love for anyone else? I think probably zero. What doesn't it make sense? I think probably, probably so. So how can we 
even imagine, again, moving into the realm of possibility, even if it's not actuality yet. How can we envision having such a sense of unconditional love for ourselves? Well, let's look at the false facsimile. What's the false facsimile of loving-kindness? Self-centered attachment, 100%. Well, self-centered attachment, sure. Self-centered attachment. So that could be to a, a lover, a friend, countryman, and so forth and so on, where the displays of affection, maybe even willing to sacrifice, making big sacrifices, wanting to give gifts, wanting to do good, wanting to help out, wanting to help out, really all looking like they're expressions of genuine loving kindness, and in fact they're expressions of self-centered attachment. I'm giving something out because I'm expecting even more back. You know? It happens a lot. So if that can happen towards others, oh, clearly that can happen towards oneself as well. Rather than developing a genuine sense of loving kindness for oneself, one may just develop self-centered attachment. So it starts with self, ends with self. And self-centered attachment, as in any form of attachment, always entails, here's by definition, always entails a cognitive bias. You might recall the Sanskrit word klesha, mental affliction, related to klishta. Klishta, that's an adjective. And klishta means warped, distorted. Like looking through a lens, where if you see everything through the lens is now bent out of shape, contorted. So, whenever, here's a great big universal statement, core Buddhist psychology, Whenever a mental affliction of any kind arises, delusion, craving, hostility, envy, arrogance, whatever, whenever a mental affliction arises, it always distorts our way of apprehending reality. Whatever we're tending to, looking to another person with attachment, with aversion, with envy, looking upon ourselves with arrogance, and so forth, it always distorts. That's just the nature of it. It's rooted in delusion. All mental afflictions are either delusion or are rooted in delusion, which means it's always got some, an agenda, a twist, a warp, a twisting, a cognitive deformation of whatever, whatever we're tending to. So, the implication of this is that self-directed loving-kindness, optimally unconditional loving-kindness, must not entail some cognitive distortion. And that happens a lot. This strong emphasis, strong em emphasis now in the modern world, especially Euro-America, of you have to love yourself. You must have high, a good sense of high self-esteem. You must feel good about yourself. Have a strong sense of self-esteem. Right? Accept yourself. Accept yourself wholly. Well, that sounds very nice. I think it sounds better than be totally disgusted with yourself. Reject yourself entirely. Find yourself contemptible. Want a divorce from yourself. <laughs> it's better than that. But it's kind of like, do you want this delusion or do you want that delusion? Self-esteem should be based on something real, right? Not just cognitive distortion. Self-acceptance. Okay, exactly what is the nature of the self you're accepting? 
Are you accepting all your mental afflictions? Saying, after all, they're mine. They're not that bad. You know? I mean, my anger is kind of cute. Some people find it charming. It's actually a sign of strength. And arrogance, oh, it's, it's kind of cute, you know. And my attachment, well, it's kind of sweet. People don't really mind it much. You know, so trying to put a nice sugary spin, a sugar, sugar coating on one's own mental afflictions. And on one's own behavior, when one, 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 one rude, and said, so, no, I was applying skillful means. Or in Tibetan Buddhism, we like this one. Do something really outrageously disgusting. You can't judge me. That was crazy wisdom. <laughs> I'm beyond, I'm a Dzogchen practitioner. I'm a Dzogchen. I'm beyond good and evil. Just, you have to accept me as I am. What I'm doing is a spontaneous display of my own intrinsic bullshit. <laughs> or something. Pristine awareness bullshit. Sometimes they get confused. So, self-directed loving kindness has to be better than that. And then what blocks it? What blocks it? Cognitive fusion. The sense of thorough identification with the behavior that we manifest and the mental afflictions that arise. So in this regard, settling the mind in the natural state is really good medicine. Really good medicine. Then we see this whole array of mental events and images and emotions and desires, thoughts of all kinds, fantasies and all kinds of rising, rising, rising. We say, they're just arising. They're just arising. I'm not even responsible for all of them arising. If you watch some some television program that somebody else has the remote, you're not even choosing the program, but you're sitting there for a company, and some really disgusting imagery comes up. You know. It happened to my wife once, my, my, my wife and me once, for a very short time. I'll tell the story. It was, was really bizarre. We were stuck in Chengdu for about ten days, waiting for our special scholar visa to get to Tibet, be able to travel around freely. And this was back in 1992. It was not set up for tourists yet. There was really nothing to do, and we didn't speak Chinese. And so we had a lot of time on our hands, waiting, 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 not even knowing whether we'd get this visa. And really hungering for something was a bit familiar, because everything was in Chinese. And we found one movie theater, and it had some movie that was more expensive, like three times the price of ordinary movies, which would all be in Chinese, we didn't understand. Said, ah, maybe that's a Western movie. It looked like it had Western actors. So let's watch that movie. It's three times as expensive as the other one. This, maybe we can get some entertainment here, you know, pass some time. So we shelled out, you know, extra money, came in to watch the movie. So it was a small movie theater. But, oh, this could be a good movie. Sat down, and it was, and they started showing images. Oh. Hardcore porn. <laughs> really hardcore barnyard porn. Oh. <laughs> you know, images coming, images coming. Let's get out of here quickly. You know, but, you know, the damage was done. The imprints are there. They're now on my mind stream. They're stored in my substrate consciousness. Ay, ay, ay. Father, forgive me, I knew not what I was getting into. <laughs> you know? So, who knows what could arise in the dream the next night? You know, the images are there, they're stored in the substrate, your dreams come out of the substrate. So that night, I frankly I don't remember what I dreamed, but if I had a dream that had entailed porn, 
That could happen, right? I mean, it made quite an impression. Nausea and so forth. But we're not, we're not morally responsible for just every bit of junk that arises in space of the mind. And if we don't identify with it, not only the images that come up, but the impulses that come up, the pettiness, the anger, the resentment, the craving, the selfishness, and so forth, observing them coming up, arising and passing, rising and passing. And I don't have to love any of this stuff. And moreover, I don't have to accept any of this stuff either. I don't have to accept any of this. It's just... Stuff arising and then passing. I don't have to, I accept you, you're part of me. I reject you, you're not part of me. Neither one, you're just happening. Happening and then you're gone. But in the midst of all that ebb and flow, in the midst of all the comings and goings, the arisings of desires, memories and all of that, there is something that is not static, but it is a continual flow. There's a continual flow of awareness, and the awareness is not neutral. Together with that awareness is a flow, an ongoing flow of yearning. Of yearning. Yearning for happiness. Yearning to be free of pain and suffering. It's always there. Every waking moment, even in the dreams, we don't want to have unpleasant dreams. There is someone there always wishes to find happiness. It's worthy of finding happiness. So it's finding that level. It's not something you can lock onto and grasp onto you like, gotcha. But more, just relatively speaking, there is a person here. Here's Anila. Here's Katinka. Here's Paula. Here's Tracy. And so this comes up in the Madhyamaka philosophy, the middle way philosophy of when we're attending to each other, or when we're attending to the world around us. But let's focus on human beings. When we're attending on human beings, right? don't probe too deeply, because then the human being disappears. You know, is it the body? Is it the mind? Don't do the ontological analysis. Is it the body, the mind, the combination? Is there a separate self? No, don't go there. Just, hey, there's a person here sp speaking. This is true. The Buddha never refuted that. That there's somebody speaking here, his name, they call him Alan. The Buddha never refuted that. The Buddha referred to himself. He referred to many other people. He didn't say, hey, you over there who doesn't exist, come over here to another person who doesn't exist. No, he didn't do that. There is a level in which this is all real, you know? And so attending beyond the appearances of I like and I don't, I don't like, attractive and unattractive, that's just sheer appearances. That's flat. That's flat. That's not a sentient being. Don't probe so deeply that you've gone into the realm of no self, non, not finding of any inherently existent self. Attend just closely enough. In this very soft way. Soft not as in deluded or nebulous, but just not penetrating. Like a mother gazing with love at her child. She doesn't need to glom onto the inherent existence of her baby. Nor is she just attached to its body. She's attending in a very loving way, a very gentle way, just to the child, leaving it there. So if we can direct that awareness inwardly, upon there's a sentient being here, always wanting to be happy, always wanting to be free of suffering. It's really, it approaches more and more deeply, viewing your manifestation in this life, your body, 
while settling the mind in this natural state, attending to the mind. It's more and more viewing it from the perspective of substrate consciousness. And that's a very interesting perspective. I do. I vividly remember a film, a very short film, like 10 minutes, I think it was 10 minutes, 12 minutes, made by a friend of mine named Barry Hershey, a lovely man. And he's a businessman, but also has quite some artistic sense for making films. So he makes films that are shown in theaters, art, art, art films. And he did one that really made quite an impression on me. Saw it years ago. Very tastefully done, very professionally done. And all that you see, the film opens up, and then you just see a series, a montage, flowing through time of one face coming up, facing out another face coming up, and fading out another face coming up. Each one having a lot of character, very, very tastefully, very artfully done. But just image after image after image after image like that. Something very simple. But as I, as I was attending to it, really quite, really focused, I had this really strong sense, ah, this could be what it's like to look back into your past lives. That when I was an old woman, careworn face. There I was a businessman. Oh, there, school child. Oh, there, house mother, taking care of her children. Ah, and that when I was that. Oh, and that when I was a yogi. Oh, and that when I was a bandit, a bandit out in Tibet. Big gun, flintlock. Seeing all these appearances arising, but having that sense of connectedness, it really felt like one was seeing like a reincarnation, a flow, a flow of embodiments, embodiments all arising out of the same continuum. I don't know why I thought that, but that was, and of course I have no reason to believe it's true. I don't believe it was true. But it had that sense, that artistic sense, is this is all of a continuum. These are all coming out of the same flow, manifesting in different ways. So imagine if you could remember your past lives, let's say a hundred of them. You wouldn't recognize any of them in this lifetime. You could be seeing an image of yourself as you were 60 years ago. And if you bumped into that person on the street, you wouldn't even recognize them. And the preceding one, and the preceding one, and the preceding one. They're all of your continuum, but you wouldn't recognize a single one. Not likely. You might have a certain affinity, like something about you kind of familiar. That would be a bit, it comes only on something amorphous. So I'm rambling on. I think I'll, I'll ramble off pretty quickly here. <laughs> But if we can tap into that dimension for ourselves, of seeing there is someone here, yearning for happiness, deserving of happiness, not intrinsically screwed up, not intrinsically afflictive, not intrinsically deformed. Essential nature purity. Essential nature Buddha nature. And that is the very wellspring of this yearning for genuine happiness. If we can arouse that and love ourselves through thick and thin when we're manifesting in ways that are not very agreeable, maybe really wrong, manifesting in ways that are very pleasant, sometimes just pretty ordinary, but in the midst of all of that, always wishing ourselves well. When we screw up, we act out of mental afflictions, then just be there as our best friend to pick ourselves up. Okay, you screwed up. Don't screw up forever. Why don't you break that habit? Let's not do that again. Be your own best friend to help you through and not repeat the same mistakes in the past in a very loving way. Never loving the behavior. The behavior is not loving. Not loving the mental afflictions behind them. But loving the person 
Just carrying on, carrying on. Always there to help yourself. I've said this many times for the meditation. Enter the meditation very lovingly, gently. Wanting to do some good for yourself. Enacting loving kindness as you settle your body, speech, and mind in its natural state. Right? Doing that for yourself. If you can see, I am not these mental addictions, I am not this physical form, I am not those disagreeable forms of behavior. They come and go. But here I am, always wishing for happiness. Then as you really get the feel for that, see, there is someone here lovable all the time. Worthy of love. Worthy of taking care of. And then you attend to a loved one. And you say, they don't always appear agreeable. Sometimes they get in a bad mood. Or some mental addiction comes up. But still there's a person there worthy of love. And then extending outwards. Final point in this regard, as Holiness so strongly emphasizes, I mean throughout, I mean decades now, and I've seen him in so many contacts with scientists and so forth, looking for common ground. Looking for common ground. Because as soon as we feel something like self-contempt, low self-esteem, lack of self-love, self-judgment, internally within the system there's already a sense of you're not like me. The one I don't like, the one I'm disappointed with, the one I, I feel contempt for. You're a disappointment. Some separation. Some separation. It's not a total fusion of just one person. It's more of like a viewing down. That you're really a disappointment. Some separation. Some feeling of alienation. Internally, within the one single system of a human being. Alienation from oneself. A steady, a splitting, a separating apart. Isn't that true? Well, to heal that divide, to heal that divide, and feel throughout all of this, all the ways I manifest behavior, mental things, and so forth, there's always common ground. There's a flow of consciousness. If, you're, if your heart tells you this, then affirm it. There's a flow of Buddha nature. There's someone, there's something, a flow that is continual. And as we attend to others, sometimes others behave in ways that are very disagreeable. Display attitudes, racist attitudes, sexist attitudes, bigoted attitudes, closed-minded, narrow-minded, selfish, greedy, manipulative, exploitative. And it's so easy to feel that divide. You're not like me. You're not like me. Thank God you're not like me. I am not that bad. Right? And then, of course, the distance. You're outside of my circle. I can't have people in my circle that are like that. Right? Okay, but now go deeper. Where's the common ground? Yes, the behavior may be deplorable. Where's the common ground? Where did that come from? And here's the great mystery, that even when people behave in the most deplorable ways, most injurious ways, they always think they're doing something good. Stalin, Stalin with the 20 million people that he killed. The purge after purge after purge. I'm sure he had it in mind. This is justified. This is justified. This will be for the greater good. This, this is right what I'm doing. I'm sure he did. Sure he did. And we think of all the other despots throughout history. They always had some reason, some justification for killing hundreds of thousands, millions of people don't worry, it looks bad, it looks bad, but it's, there's a, there's a, there's a good underlying this. You may not see it, but I know more than you do. 
enslaving whole races. It looks bad. I agree, it looks bad. But if you saw it from my perspective, you see there's greater good here. Always have a reason. Always something that makes sense to them. No matter what they do, there's some justification. And so they're doing all of this to find happiness. And for themselves or someone to be free of suffering. First compassion. And then we can ask, do I ever do that myself? Do I ever harm people? Speak harshly? Insensitively? Treat others badly? And always justify it? Am I really that different? Or is it simply a matter of magnitude? If I love myself, then I think I need to love you too. And may you be well. And may you find the true causes of happiness. And then your heart just melts. Your heart opens. And you're the first beneficiary. You're the first person to get benefit. All of us. I've rambled on enough. Let's practice. as an expression of loving-kindness for yourself. In your aspiration to find happiness and cultivate the causes of happiness. Settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm, and for a little while calm and soothe the mind with mindfulness of breathing.
then lightly direct your awareness in upon yourself, not penetratingly, not so deeply that you see only the emptiness of of an inherently existent self, not so superficially that you see only the appearances of a body and mental processes. Attend lightly to the presence of a human being here. Your awareness by nature pure, luminous. And this yearning for loving kindness stemming from the deepest possible dimension. With unlimited capacity for virtue. Just waiting to be cultivated or unveiled. And envision your own well-being. What would make you truly happy? Provide you with a sense of true fulfillment, satisfaction. When you see that your vision is good, show no restraint in allowing the yearning to arise. May I be truly well and happy. With each outbreath, breathe out the light from your heart and let it suffuse your whole being. May your heart's desire be fulfilled. With each out-breath, letting your imagination play. Imagine finding here and now a sense of well-being that is your innermost desire.
bring to mind someone who is very dear to you. Someone you find very easy to view with love and affection. And attend closely. Attending closely to this person's aspiration for happiness. Focus on the common ground. And arouse the yearning. May you, just like myself, find the happiness you seek. And may you wisely cultivate the causes that will lead to such well-being. With each out-breath, breathe out the light from your heart. Imagine this life, this light of loving kindness, the light of joy, embracing, suffusing this person. Imagine this person finding the well-being, the fulfillment that he or she seeks, here and now.
Let the appearance of this person fade back into the space of your mind. And call to mind someone also who is dear to you, perhaps not quite so close, but attend closely. Looking through the superficial veneer of behavior, mental afflictions that come and go, to a person who wakes up each morning wishing for happiness, throughout the course of each day wishing to be free of suffering, just like yourself. seeing someone who could have been you. You could have looked just like this in a past life. This could be you. With each out-breath arouse the yearning, may you, like myself, be well and happy. And then at your own pace, move on to another person, gradually moving out to the realm of neutrality. And either in this session or in the session over the coming days and weeks and months, venturing forth attending to those who appear very disagreeable, who may have treated you badly, but with the awareness that behavior comes and goes, the underlying mental afflictions come and go. To each of these persons, like yourself, always wants to find happiness. And there is that inner purity that allows for this possibility. Attend closely and breathe out the light of loving-kindness.
and release all appearances and all thoughts. Release your awareness into its own innate purity, obscured but never contaminated. Rest there and know yourself. See your own face. Originally pure. Hola, so we just have two written questions, so I'll attend to those first, and then we'll open it up. In Chapter 3 of The Attention Revolution, I say that in order, to, in order for a meditator to progress beyond Stage 3, and even to attain Stage 3 itself, he or she should take the practice as a serious avocation. Beyond, that's a generalization. Some people are very gifted very gifted, so they might be able to practice just, you know, two or three hours a day and still achieve stage three and actually stabilize there, not just spike up once in a while. So I, I, I did say that, I stand by it, and yet it's not an absolute rule because there's so many variations on just the degree of giftedness, talent, native ability. So it varies a lot. He was very gifted. Is very gifted. Nima, Dzogchen master in his last life, living in a cave in Nepal. He was a little boy, but he was a little toddler. He was actually reborn quite near where he had passed away in a cave. Really accomplished yogi. This time he's a little boy, a little Nepalese boy. He kept on trying to run away from home. He was like two or three, trying to run back to his cave. 
And when his parents would bring him back, come on, come, come back here, kid, then he would just sit cross-legged and stare at a wall. If you won't let me go to my cave, okay, my cave has to come to me. So some people are gifted. But not out of the blue, not just because God loves them more, or something like that. They build up momentum. So, but for the rest of us, yeah, for these people like me who have really not gifted at all, keep on pushing. Just as long as it's the right direction, that's all that matters. But what about this taking meditation as a serious avocation? Could you elaborate on what you mean by this term? Does it mean that the practice should become one's profession? Yeah, why not? I mean, you know, we'll never have too many meditators in the world. Too many, you know, too many contemplatives. Oh, what to do? All the caves are full, you know, everywhere. <laughs> Look in any cave, there's a yogi there. Oh, yeah, yeah, what do you have to do with it? You know, I was hoping for an empty cave. So the number of people who are really from their heart, really drawn, like everything just fades away. Everything else just fades away. This is the only thing. Just devote oneself single-pointedly to the contemplative life. It's always a small minority, even in Tibet, where one out of five men were monks. Not many of them were meditators. One out of seven nuns. Meditators were rare. Even among the monks and nuns. And even in a country that had one monastery for every thousand people, not thousand monks, thousand people, that's of high density, even there, really serious meditators, people really dedicated, always a small percentage. But if one feels that avocation, if one feels that longing, that yearning, where everything else is not a matter of discipline, like I should be doing it, I should, I really should, I should, but that's all I want to do, then sure, why not? The noblest of professions. Become a bodhisattva. Do the world a favor. We have a major deficit of bodhisattvas these days, I think. So many of the great yogis. We just, we just lost one great yogi, Tuji Rinpoche. One of the greatest yogis in living in Nepal. Well, no longer there. Not in that body. Just lost another one. And so many have already passed away. Those really, these noble beings, inconceivable beings, trained in Tibet, meditated in Tibet bring such wisdom, one by one, like lights going out. Where they were, they are no longer. So we need some replacements. And not just looking for them. Oh, may you come back. May you come back. May you come back. That's very good. But how about some fresh crop coming up? You know. So, sure. I think we need that. It's the world's second oldest profession. <laughs> and a very noble one so yeah the more contemplatives the better and they're also they're, they're you know they're cheap <laughs> they're really inexpensive you know to support a yogi I mean really compared to supporting almost anybody else the yogis are really cheap ten dollars a day fifteen dollars a day you got yourself a yogi that's cheap I mean, some people get that much per hour, right? And some people get that per minute. Lawyers, $250, $500 an hour? Boy, I've just supported one yogi for a month by talking for an hour. That'd be cool. So, yeah. 
the whole gradient from doing, you know, five minutes to release a little bit of tension to doing, oh, like, again, I remember starting at five o'clock in the morning, ending at one o'clock in the morning, 20 hour dedication to practice. Anything in between. Moving around the gradient is good. Here's one that's not urgent. You spoke before regarding the lack of cultivation of bodhicitta on the Dzogchen path. Yeah, you chose the words right. A lack of cultivation, although having said that, in the same text, you're right. I mean, I stand by the words. I was quoting a great text. At the same time, in the same Dzogchen text, does he ever allude to cultivating bodhicitta? Yes, he does. Will you find a single Dzogchen master who says, oh, we don't talk about bodhicitta because it'll rise spontaneous. No, it's there. It's there. But he is speaking very deeply, deeply. If you ascertain Rigpa, then it comes up spontaneously. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be cultivating the four immeasurables and so forth. Since those practitioners, that is on the Dzogchen Pass, since those practitioners will have already perfected Shamana Vipassana, quite so. I mean, if they, if they are, is it true? Okay, let's be careful here. And I have this directly from this whole minute. Is it true that you need to have achieved Shamana before you can gain some realization of Rigpa? So again, my, my words, I mean, this, this guy here, the 61-year-old Californian, whatever I say really doesn't make any difference at all. Or my opinion is worth nothing. But His Holiness's view is worth a lot. And he said, definitely not. You do not need to have achieved shamatha, the whole nine stages, the whole kit and caboodle, in order to gain some genuine insight in Rigpa. To gain some real taste of what he did. To gain some realization of emptiness. Do not need shamatha first. Then we say, well, what do you need Shambhata for? Oh, that's in order for the Bodhicitta to become spontaneous, uncontrived, fully flower. For the Vipassana to fully have the power to fully purify the mind must be fused with Shambhata. That's, that's core Buddhist teaching. Shambhata Vipassana, Shambhata Vipassana. And likewise for the Rikpa, the realization of Rikpa. For that, I mean, I was just translating, just this afternoon I took a little break and was translating a Dzogchen text exactly on the section of breaking through. And he says, once you've, from the moment that you have ascertained, recognized, Rikpa, from that point on, day and night, just rest in that flow. Without trying to fix your mind, without adulterating, without contriving, without fixing it, without adding, subtracting, now you're, you've just slipped into that stream. Just stay there. Just stay there all the way through. Don't mess with it. Just rest in that ongoing flow, day and night. How are you going to do that if your mind is prone to excitation and laxity? Don't expect that Rigpa will do it all for you. So for that, to be able to have that type of continuity, that he said, without wavering, without wavering, day and night, without wavering, just, just rest in that ongoing flow, Rigpa. For that, shamatha. That's why shamatha comes first. Shamatha, vipassana, and then the texture. Classic sequence, so often overlooked. So, so since those practitioners will already have perfected shamatha, vipassana, and, a kind, and what kind of aspiration, what strength of aspiration must they cultivate to avoid turning the liberation to the liberation of an arhat? Well, that's the deal. At which point must this be in place? Very good. Um, this is where the initial motivation really comes in. Very initial motivation. And that is from the start. You arouse, you arouse your best semblance of great compassion. 
the four measurables. That's why we're doing this. That's why in these initial eight-week retreats, I don't go to Dzogchen immediately. We're laying foundation. Shamata leads to Vipassana. The four measurables leads to Bodhicitta. With Bodhicitta and Vipassana, now you're ready for Dzogchen. Especially what's empowered by Shamata. Now, is that fully perfected Vipassana? Fully perfected Bodhicitta? No, but it's something authentic. Something that already has that vastness of vision and that depth of insight. And then, then you go into the Rikpa. Already, you're not, you're not going into the Rikpa. May, may I achieve liberation for myself and gain an exit strategy from samsara to nirvana. The motivation is different. Very, very different. The motivation from the beginning is to realize the one taste of samsara and nirvana. It's different. It's, it's not the shravakayana motivation. But the, the really crucial point here is that in many Sutrayana teachings, when we speak of ultimate bodhicitta, it's referring to realization of emptiness. Sutrayana teaching. Relative bodhicitta, to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Ultimate bodhicitta, realizing emptiness of all phenomena. And there it is. Between those two, then, it's enormously important that, 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 that there be balance because if one starts to drift away from the bodhicitta and just focus on the emptiness, 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 then you could slip off just onto a path for your own liberation. Because to realize emptiness is not to realize rikpa. One can realize emptiness without realizing rikpa. To realize emptiness does not necessarily give rise to bodhicitta, otherwise all the arhats would have a bodhicitta. So there's that type of nomenclature, that type of usage of terms, ultimate bodhicitta, realization of emptiness, and therefore the whole bodhisattva path is this moving back and forth, this sometimes oscillation, and then deeper, deeper integration, until finally non-duality of wisdom and skillful means, of insight into emptiness and bodhicitta. Right? More and more fused, more and more fused. Vajrayana is, is all of Vajrayana is designed to help that fusion, that non-duality of wisdom of emptiness and bodhicitta. Right? bringing them together, fusing them, merging them, and thereby tremendously empowering oneself along the path. But it must be both. must be both. In Dzogchen, in the Great Perfection, all of these have their place. Shamatha has an indispensable place. Cultivating this great compassion, the Bodhicitta, has a crucial place. You don't just skip it and say, oh, I'll get to it after, you know, just, I'll get it for free later. No, you cultivate it from the beginning. And likewise, realization of emptiness is indispensable. Indispensable. Again, again, this text I've been translating. He says, you realize emptiness, and now you go on to Rikpa. It's only the Dalai Lama in a one-on conversation. Realize emptiness, then you go on to Rikpa. It's classic. It's a classic. It's not an opinion. But when you do gain that realization of Rikpa, and it deepens, and it deepens, and it deepens, because that's why you rest in it. If it were enough just to kind of get it, oh yeah, I got that. You know, like finding a pair of lost socks. Oh, I found my lost socks. Put them in the drawer. And I don't have to worry about it. I found it. You know, if it were like that, then no problem. But that's why one dwells. That's why it says day and night rest in Rikpa. Why? Because the veils and veils and veils of obscuration. It's not like you just absolutely nail it, get full realization the first glimpse. But the veils, by dwelling in it, in non-meditation, the veils, 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 and are evaporate, and then the full depth full import of Rigpa, pristine awareness, Buddha nature, 
manifests, and then the bodhicitta just flows out spontaneously. Okay? So that's the difference. Realize rikpa, and bodhicitta will flow from that. Realize emptiness, bodhicitta doesn't flow from that necessarily. Again, I was just, oh, I was listening to Young Donabuchi's teachings last night, this great master. And he was commenting, and speaking for the whole Mahayana tradition, as you gain insight into emptiness, this will naturally give rise to deeper compassion. So it's not unrelated. But is realization of emptiness sufficient to arouse bodhicitta? No. Not sufficient. Something like that. Oh, yeah. We have some minutes left. Anything else coming up? Christina first. Thank you, dear. A, a classical question about uh, Shamata and Vipassana in the Theravada and in the uh, Mayana tradition. Yes. Mayana and Hinayana. Yeah. The difference. Oh, the common thing, common ground. Oh, boy, that's an enormous question. No. <laughs> it's, it's good. I mean, it's a perfectly good question, and, and it is enormous. Um, I did my doctoral dissertation on shamatha, and I studied Theravada, I studied the Gagyu Nyingma tradition, and I studied the Galupa tradition. Brought those together, three, three together. And was looking, I think with a fairly open mind, I didn't have any particular preference, I don't think, to just see how they did interrelate, interrelate, were there any really significant differences, big, big deep differences, between the Kagyu Nyingma tradition, the Galupa tradition, and the Theravada. I studied it for years, read fairly extensively, wrote my dissertation. I couldn't find anything really significant that was really different. Methods, of course, vary. Of course, they should. But when they say you've achieved shamatha, well, it's access to the first jhana. And then I read the different descriptions from the Theravada and so forth. I couldn't see anything really different. You couldn't see much. So in that regard, I think just different methods. But, for example, if one achieves the first jhana, fully achieve the first jhana, which is really discussed quite practically as something you might really want to do in the Theravada tradition, and if you achieve the first jhana fully, then Buddha Gosa, drawing on hundreds of years of yogis' experience, the great chronicler, of Buddhist meditative experience says, once you've achieved, fully achieved the first jhana, then you can slip into samadhi and you can remain in impeccable samadhi for 24 hours at a stretch. Like a strong man who can stand upright for 24 hours without falling down. So, pretty robust stability. And moreover, the Theravada tradition, the Vabhashika, the Satrantika, the Mahayana, they all say, when you achieve the first jhana, your sense is completely implode. You're not aware of your physical environment. You're not, a, not aware of your own body. You've completely withdrawn into mental. And if you've fully achieved the first jhana, your mind has slipped into another dimension of reality, which is the former. If you've achieved just shamatha, as in access to the first jhana, then you're right on the cusp. You're right on the cusp. That is, you've not immersed yourself into the form realm, but you're not entirely separate from it. It's kind of like you've put one foot through the through the doorway. You're not quite in, you're not quite out. They can't slam the door on your foot because your foot's in, but you're not inside the house either. So if it rains, you'll get wet. So it's right on the cusp. Well, that's the same. Theravada tradition, Mahayana tradition. So Theravada tradition, where they really have a lot of experience of people really achieving the first jhana, 
say 24 hours. If you've achieved the fourth jhana, then you can stay for weeks with no breath. Mahayana tradition says the same. Now the Mayanda tradition, the Indo-Tibetan tradition in particular, says now if you've not achieved the full jhana, but if you achieve access to the full jhana, first jhana, shamatha, then without doubt, at least four hours effortlessly, whenever you want. That's access. So, that makes a lot of sense to me. Access to the first jhana, four hours effortlessly. Full, full jhana, 24 hours. So, very much in the same family. When it comes to Vipassana, now one sees significant differences. But not going just in different directions. But rather, an unfolding, and then a further unfolding, and then a further unfolding. Now, clearly, as soon as I say anything, I have to speak from a perspective. I could shift perspectives, but I'm going to speak from a unified perspective. I'll speak from the perspective of Dzogchen. Because that's, I think, the deepest one that I have any idea about. In the Theravada Vipassana, the central themes concerning which one is seeking to gain direct, experiential, radically transformative insight are into the three marks of existence. Impermanence, the nature of Dukkha, non-self. Now, in the Pali Canon, there are also references to emptiness. Emptiness, shunya. It's that. A friend of mine, wonderful monk named Analaya Bhikkhu, I just had pleasure of meeting him for the first time, and I think, and I'd corresponded with him earlier. Oh, very good monk, German monk, very good monk. Excellent scholar. Well, puts me to shame. I can't even compare to him. He reads Chinese, he reads Tibetan, Sanskrit, Pali, I think maybe some other language, and German and English, of course. Really, Exceptional. So he's just writing a paper, maybe even a book, on the nature of emptiness within Theravada, within, in the Pali Canon in particular. So it's there. And you do find seeds where the Buddha refers to phenomena having only a nominal existence, like a chariot, not being any of its components, but something that's labeled upon the components. It's there. But not very elaborated. More the sense that these phenomena are empty of the imputations of the labels and so forth that we designate upon them. So by realizing those three marks of existence, this really brings about really a, a true revolution in the mind. Just a realization of emptiness, excuse me, of impermanence alone, brings about such a tremendous transformation. There's a point for the Theravada, Theravada monk, where having achieved samadhi, really good samadhi, first jhana anyway, access at least, then goes into samadhi attending to aspect of any reality, one's own body, mind, other phenomena, and then like a surgeon comes in and focuses especially on really carving out this very slender, very narrow focus of just observing very intently just the falling away of phenomena. Not how they arise and how they're present, but just the falling away from moment to moment, the dissolution, but it's an ongoing flow like a waterfall gushing over a cliff. It's just saying, gone, gone, gone. But so much faster than that. <laughs> Everything going. All attachment just, it kills it. When you're seeing everything that you turn your attention to, every object that might be an object of attachment, a loved one, one's own body, an, a personal possession, a place, anything. And as you attend to them, you just see they're just they're just 
melting away before your eyes. There's just nothing there to hold on to. That really radically changes. Really changes. Craving, grasping, just doesn't have a chance. Realization of dukkha, the real nature of suffering and the causes of suffering. The nature of non-self. Profoundly transformed. But then in the Heart Sutra, in the Heart Sutra, then Avalokiteshvara addressing Shariputra says it's not only the self that is empty, not only are the five skandhas empty of some autonomous, separate, immutable self. Not only that. In other words, good so far. But it's not only that your skandhas, your body and mind, are empty of some separate, controlling, immutable self. The skandhas themselves are empty. And then everything's empty. The outer world. Everything empty of inherent nature. Everything just empty appearances. The appearances being empty, the emptiness being nothing other than the appearances. Oh. You don't get that message so clearly in the body can. It's That's another revolution. That's really oh, another whole dimension. So that too is the question. To realize that depth of the can I say synonymity? The, the one meaning of dependent origination and emptiness. To see dependent origination is to see emptiness. To see emptiness is to see dependent origination. They're really one and the same. Two ways of expressing the one way out. That's Mahayana. That's Mahayana Vipassana. You don't see that so clearly in the Vatican. It's there, but more seminally there. But Narajuna, the perfection of wisdom sutras, the diamond cutter sutra, and so forth. Full blossom. Really clear. And it's deeper. What can I say? I'm speaking of looking, but it's deeper. It's just deeper. It changes everything. Because if you've just realized impermanence, dukkha, and non-self, you can still think that the world is substantial, tangible, really out there objectively. And the skandhas are real. Body, feelings, mental processes, consciousness, real, inherently existent. Just devoid of a self. Okay, no big deal. And then you see, oh, even they are empty. Oh, that's another whole, another whole dimension. Something beyond that. And in the Dzogchen view, if one is still reifying one's own mind, my mind, something inherently real, inherently separate from everybody else's mind, holding onto that, You won't realize rebirth. Not going to happen. To realize all phenomena as not only empty, but all phenomena equally as displays, spontaneous creative displays of pristine awareness, rigpa. You'll never realize that if you're reifying them as they are. If you're grasping onto them as existing as they appear, then you'll never see. It will not be possible to see them as simply these luminous, empty displays of rebirth. So, everything ends in order. But I must say I have a lot of competence. A lot of competence. This is not just multiple schools debating with each other. 
our abuse is this, our abuse is that, our abuse. The very phrase Dzogchen translated quite well. It's great perfection. Another translation you never hear, but which is also quite accurate, is great encompassment. Encompassment. In one text that I've translated, the Sharp Bhattrachan, I'm quite sure it's there. Dujum Lingba goes to non-Buddhist views. And then Shravaka, and right on through the whole spectrum, whole spectrum of views, and see how each one makes sense. Each one makes sense from the great perfection. This one got that aspect of reality, but no more. But this one got that aspect, but got more. And this one, like Russian dolls, and this one got that one, but it got more. And this one, and this one, and this one, and then finally, the great encompassment. Quite breathtaking. Quite breathtaking. So that's that. Oh yeah. I do run on. Hopefully, hopefully once in a while, like, you know, a blind man throwing darts. (laughs) Maybe something will be relevant. If I talk long enough, maybe something will make sense and be actually useful. Hope so. Hope so. So, enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow morning.